welcome, welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. End of February 2018. Hard to believe. Uh, the second month of the year is already gone. And of course, this is also Oscar week and Spirit Awards week, which is always my favorite day uh, for awards. Um, that'll be Saturday before the Oscars on Sunday. But welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my movie reviews, interviews, and hear them in print and online around the globe 24-7. But every Monday, you will find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 o'clock at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I did say that right, 11 a.m. Pacific? Yes, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And it is a joy to be here again with you. Very, very, very fun show I'm looking forward to today um, with two very interesting movies. Uh, one deals with dysfunctional relationships, which I love, uh, and comedy. The other one deals with hypochondria and comedy. So I think we've got a win-win for you today Um at the quarter hour mark, Michelle Remsen, writer, director, and actor in Toss It, will be joining us live. And I got to tell you, Michelle Remsen is, she is a force of nature. She's a playwright. She's written for television, um, for stage, now movies, and now she's directing her first feature film. So I can't wait to talk to her um, I really like the, her character development in this film, so I'm anxious to hear what she has to say about her inspiration for some of these characters. Because i got to tell you, some of them could have been, come out of my family. Um, then at the half-hour mark, we've got Matt Porter and Max Azule joining us to talk about their new film, Five Doctors, a comedy of hypochondria. Um, it is so mu- The film is so much fun. And you can actually, you will be able to get Five Doctors tomorrow on digital and DVD, I be, and uh, VOD. Yeah, digital and VOD tomorrow. So that's exciting. You know, and Michelle, we're getting Michelle fresh off her Hollywood, <clears throat> her Hollywood, a real independent film festival screening last night. So uh, I'm sure she's going to either be partied out or full of energy. I'm not sure which. But uh, I understand it was very well-received screening, so um, I can't, I'm just very excited about having all three of them on the show today. And let's give you a little bit, a little heads up here. We have a very, very special guest coming next week on March 5th. The legendary Dick Cavett is joining us live at the half hour mark of the show, 11.30 uh, Pacific, 2.30 p.m. Eastern. So that is something that nobody wants to miss. Dick Cavett on Behind the Lens. I'm ve- That's thrilling, thrilling to me. And, of course, then a couple weeks later, I just uh, yesterday I just sat down for a one-on-one with Dennis Quaid, uh, as well as Madeline Carroll, to talk about their new film, uh, which is, what is I Can Only Imagine?, based on the incredible story of Bart Millard, uh, renowned frontman for the Christian, uh, Christian band Mercy Me, and uh, one of the best-selling songs of all time, I can only imagine. The film will be out in a couple weeks. They're asking us to hold all reviews and interviews until uh, the week of release, which is why you will hear uh, from my... Dennis Quaid interview on the March 12th show. Very insightful character you haven't seen from Dennis before. So that'll be exciting to share that with all of you. But in the interim, something we're going to share with you today is, of course, Black Panther is still, still top of the leaderboard here in the box office. uh, And with good reason. We talked about it. You heard my inter- my exclusive interview with Hannah Beachler, production designer, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's the film truly is production values are off the charts, and I'll say it again um, that Hannah Beachler, as well as costume designer Ruth Carter, will get Oscar nominations next year. 
they their work in Black Panther is incredible. For me, that's where the the money shows. All the money, the whole budget of Black Panther you see on screen. There aren't too many movies you can say that about, but the detail when you look at Ruth Carter's costumes, the color design, the fabrications, the jewelry that was custom designed. Similarly with Hannah's production design and the and the big set pieces. Um there is so much attention to detail and specificity that went into creating the world of Wakanda that it just it's mind blowing. Um I actually did pay money to go see it again just because of the richness of detail, more so than the story, but the actual production values of the film. But there's one character that I dearly love in Black Panther, and that is Agent Everett Ross. We first met uh, Agent Ross in Captain America Civil War. Well, he's back, played by the wonderful Martin Freeman. And much like Clark Gregg's character started out, uh, a smaller character who then gets to evolve into and have his own hero moments. And, of course, we all know what happened with Clark Gregg. He went on to, you know, they created Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, I truly hope that we see a lot more of Agent Everett Ross uh, because he is a lot of fun. He is a lot of fun in Black Panther. Uh, especially when he teams up with Letitia Wright. The two of them have an incredible repartee and comedic timing together that is so much fun. But during the recent press conference, I had a chance to specifically ask Martin Freeman about his role as Agent Everett Ross. Take a listen. Congratulations, guys. An incredible job. WLI is behind the lens. Um, Ryan, I just have to tell you, your production values, off the charts. Mm -hmm. Your team delivered for you. But I want to ask Martin, you get to have a role that we've seen with other people, such as Clark Gregg in the Marvel Universe, morph into something great. You really morph here. Can you talk about the experience of being Agent Ross and actually becoming a hero? In his yeah. own right. <laughs> yeah, no, that was lovely. And I, I, I'd spoken to Ryan a bit about that uh, in the uh, sort of in the process before filming, and we both agreed that we didn't want him just to be a schmuck. You know, we didn't want him just to be a, a, just a sort of comic foil. Um, that it needs to be a little bit more three D than that. And uh, and I was, yeah, I was I was very pleased when I was reading. You know bits of the script and then new bits of the script that were coming that were making that were making him more empathetic and more sympathetic and and a bit more um, can do you know because it was clearly it's 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 not Agent Ross's film by a long way but uh, but it's but he plays his part in it you know and he's there is a sort of ambivalence about Ross I think you know because you're not quite sure if he's going to be down with T'Challa or not but um, he ends up with well he ends up having his eyes opened by this country that he knew nothing about and a civilization that he knew nothing about and realizing that it had something to offer and that he went away uh, learning a bit from it, you know. Um, so I, I was very pleased that Ross had his kind of moment of heroism at the end, you know. He gets in his plane <laughs> and, uh, and he gets the help out. He has his little hand Solo moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I was really pleased and I, and I thought that was generous on the film's part and I thought it was because uh, like Andy says you know that uh, we're not short of white heroes in movies you know so I thought for, to give uh, one of the two white characters a you know a bit of a heroic moment I thought spoke very well of them actually yeah. and yes indeed it does speak very very highly of Marvel and where they're going with their franchises, with the development, with the celebration within Black Panther and its casting. And I fully believe we're going to see this is going to be the new trend of what's going to be coming down the pike. Um, but I, for one, I want to see more from Martin Freeman as Agent Ross. Because I, if for those few of you out there that haven't seen Black Panther yet, uh, it is a lot of fun to watch Martin 
as he gets to as he gets his Han Solo moment to play with high tech, you know, high technology, and uh, have all that little boy exuberance and energy come out. And it's a glorious moment. His climactic moment in the third uh, act is just such such a joy to watch unfold. So I think. Let's see, because we don't have time to do another clip of anybody, do we, Pam? No. So why don't we do, we're going to take a short public service announcement break. And by then, Michelle Remsen will probably be calling in when we come back. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Okay, kids, the campfire's out. Let's hit the road. Uh, Dad, the fire's not out. It's still smoking. No, uh, close enough. Come on, Dad, do your homework. If it's too hot to touch, then it's too hot to leave. I knew that. You're never too young to get your smoky on. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Oh my, and Pam brought us back up because Pam saw the little red light blinking. And yes, I always love it when she plays that PSA for me with my friend Sam Elliott. Uh, And yes, only you can prevent wildfires, forest fires, and every other kind of fires. So now, right now, as soon as Pam puts Michelle on hold... Because she's chatting and talking to her. That's what I love. Pam is a wonderful sound engineer. So all uh, talent, whenever you call in, it's Pam you get to talk to first. And she's actually quite nice. So don't be afraid. But here we go. Welcome to Michelle Remsen. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Debbie. Hi. I am so excited to have you on Behind the Lens today. This this is a wonderful treat, especially after you had a screening yesterday. At the yeah. Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival, I hear mm-hmm. I hear it went very well. It was. It was really well received. Well, it should be because this is a really fun movie to watch, and I think everybody in the world has had a dysfunctional relationship and family <laughs> at some point. I... Yes, it's it's pretty universal. <laughs> I mean, this is. And this is a big this is a big leap for you. As I was saying at the top of the show, you are you're a playwright, you write for stage, you write, you've written for TV. I mean, you you're an actress. Now you're a feature film director on top of it. And you're just you you're doing everything but bringing the kitchen sink into play here as your writer, director and acting. Uh in this fun fun show. Um and I, I just want to know where, to start with, where this came from. And, of course, let us just get, get this out there right away. Eagles fans, yes, we are celebrating yes. the Eagles. So the film <laughs> could not have come out more timely. Yes. I, I started cheering when I heard that. I did not do the Eagles <laughs> victory song, but, you know, and I'm sure that comes from your days at Bryn Mawr. You developed a love for, for the Eagles. Uh, well, in Bryn Mawr isn't exactly a football school, but you know it's it's in the hood. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's in the hood. So where did where did this story come from? This story of Emily and Finn and the the bunch of dysfunctional misfits that surround them, which I think contributes well, to their issues. Yes, exactly. That's you know we often see these sort of not cliche, but standard types in romantic movies of the charming, non-committal guy and witty, wary woman. And I wanted to find out, well, why are they like that? And so um, I had written 
a short play for my theater company. We had a show in February we do called My Bitter Valentine about love gone wrong. And I had written this one play and I never produced it. And they moved back to New York. Uh, someone actually went to act with me, so I sort of wrote it on request about the last two bitter singles at a wedding. And um, when I read it in New York, it went down really well, and then people wanted to know what happened next. And so I had to answer the question. Again, someone gave me an evening at 92Y Tribeca to read some of my work, and so I kept having to sort of, you know, write a little more material, and then I did a full reading of it at EST, and then people really liked it. And when I wanted to make my first feature to sort of open the door for my larger projects, I thought this was a small enough script that I could um, raise the funds, you know, through debt and donations to do it. <laughs> and so it was sort of an accident, but as I went through it, I realized it raised some interesting questions, you know, and I went deeper and sort of pulled the curtain back on all the sort of traditions of Western Civ, basically. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, and you keep it, you keep your ensemble cast small. This is, this very much is an ensemble cast. You've yes, got, it really is. And I have to commit you playing opposite Phil Burke. You two have a great screen chemistry. You know, oh, thank you. How it was great fun to start with. <laughs> how and that that's actually what the characters of Emily and Finn do. They spar mm-hmm. from beginning to end, and but it's so delicious and so fun. <laughs> you know, the dialogue. The dialogue is great. It's very witty banter. But it's also, it's so relatable. It's so resonant for everybody listening. You know, did yeah, that? That's, that's what I, I found. You know, so when I did the first thing, people talked about, oh, all the stuff that happens at weddings, and it's very, you know, charged atmosphere, you know. And then I was like, right, you're going to be surrounded by all these people you know for better or worse. And so that's how they sort of all got drawn into the story and, um, you know, start to explain who the two central characters are, but also you know, how they got there, you know, because I want them all, I wanted all of the ensembles to be very fleshed out and not make them just sort of, you know, devices to move the central characters forward. I wanted them to be real people as people are in life. And so um, that's why I became this really a true ensemble and because everybody, you know, either prodded or pushed the other character to the truth, whether they wanted to get there or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because you flesh them out so thoroughly, it really lets us understand and see why Finn is the way he is and why mm-hmm. Emily is the way she is. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was one of those things. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was... Go ahead. Oh, I got a little feedback. No. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the big thing that I always sort of saw. Like, I loved those old screwball comedies, you know, from the black and white days, you're like bringing up baby, Philadelphia story. And like, you know, the, the witty banter has long been a tradition of a lot of films, but, um, you know, you never really understand how they got to that moment. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I, when I wanted to dig a little deeper and, um, you know, I sort of had to answer those questions and then put that on, you know, when I was answering them, I was like, well, that's actually part of the, the story. You know, it's not just, me to understand it. I think people need to see this and then we can make that active between all the characters made it a very uh, active movie rather than just, you know, people discussing it. It was, you know, and also because everybody had such strong uh, actions about what they wanted or didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you also throw in some great, you know, moments of physical slapstick comedy as well, mm-hmm. um, which it, that for me just completes the whole package that really does... <laughs> It does harken to the original screwball comedies. You know, very much of this, I kept thinking, the Philadelphia story. Mm. You know, I, I... One of my favorite movies. I really kept thinking the Philadelphia story um, with the sparring with Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant. Uh, it, you don't get much better than that. And that's very much mm. what we were seeing with Emily and Finn. Yeah, but I was hoping to kind of update it with today's issues and, mm-hmm. you know, people who had their own, you know, baggage and and also to sort of re-examine the stuff that we sort of usually take for granted or, you know, blindly follow traditions. And, you know, if people kick against it or suddenly life throws them a curveball, you know, how do they respond and what do they discover in that? Mm-hmm. 
Well, now I'm curious because since you knew you would be using this as your foray into feature directing, what was your process like? You've you've written the script, knowing you were going to direct. Did you start shot listing? Did you start envisioning, getting the imagery in your mind of what you wanted to see on screen? How did you start approaching the visual look and from there end up developing with your cinematographer, George Barnes, the whole vision, the tonal bandwidth? Well, a lot of it had to do with, you know, the necessity of, we had a very tight shoot. It was only 12 days. I was originally wanted to do it in three weeks, but he could get this amazing crew for two. And so I had to tighten up the shot list, but there was a lot of pre-prep. And I fortunately had my cousin's lovely home in which to shoot. So I had a lot of time to figure out the shots ahead of time. And that is and that is I a also, lovely home. Hmm? That is a very lovely it, home. <laughs> it was it was really perfect for it, it and uh, it was also really easy to get the camera done because of the open floor plan. It made it uh, really interesting for camera angles and movement. So it was a win win. <laughs> and um, the other sets, you know, it, I found locations that were basically were dressed because of the, you know, the tight shoot. We didn't really have much time to go in and dress sets or build, you know, any sort of production design. So I fortunately found a beautiful hotel, the Wales Hotel in New York, where we did all the wedding sequence. And then I shot some of the stuff around my neighborhood in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was all shot in New York, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, the hotel on the, the Out Hotel, which was what's called that mid-century modern thing, which became the whole L.A. Vegas sequence. And so I, I knew visually, you know, I want it to look, you know, sort of like, here's what you're expecting, this beautiful sort of rom-com, and that's why the, the, slot, the shots begin are sort of slow-mo and gliding, and they're very composed and classical. And then as things go more and more, you know, get more and more tossed and go off the rails, you know, the camera angles start to get a little, you know, jump, especially like in the fight sequence, and even when they're dancing, it's a little more uncertain. You know, so we sort of knew together, like, where the, you know, the, the arc of the, the camera uh, setups and movement we go and then we worked with um the various uh locations you know also for color wise and you know, the formality of the hotel and then um you know working in the sort of the warmth of the outside and the, the kitchen fortunately had that lovely sort of warm glowy color to it which mm-hmm. is also nice to end up there because I always knew I wanted the movie to open where most rom-coms end you know in the black tie and the gown and everybody's dancing and instead, we end up in the messy kitchen in the morning with our new life. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I really want that kitchen. That is that is a beautiful <laughs> kitchen. And you're right, the golden glow, just from the cabinetry in there, and the light plays so beautifully on that. You've got, you and George came up with this really beautiful natural lighting palette. Yes. He fortunately owns all of the wonderful Ari Alexa gear, and, he, and we had a great um, uh, guy for Umpire Gaussian who... Together, we just, you know, I knew I wanted it to look like, you know, the real world. But it was also caught, you know, we caught this shot in the summer, so there was a lot of beautiful warmth around us. And I think that was important, too, for um, the story and the tone, you know, because there's a lot of sparring, but there's also, like, all this heart beneath it, because they're all sort of fighting for their lives, in a way. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's just the whole visual look. It is so, it's mm-hmm. so pleasing and very embraceable. There's nothing. Oh, there's nothing jarring, you know. Color, color is is basic. You don't use any kind of. You let you know, like the neon lights of Vegas. Okay, which is by the mm-hmm. way, that that footage is absolutely gorgeous in there. I don't know if you used stock footage mm-hmm. for that or if you shot it, but some it, of the some of the was a little stock for some of the big because they didn't have the budget to take us there. I, I wanted to in the original budget, but. <laughs> <laughs> No money for drones and cranes, huh? <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also got, you know, and I've got to ask you about um, your editor, Lorna Chin, and, and the time you spent in the editing bay. What was your editing process like on this one? Because you're not only directing and looking at it from that viewpoint. As an actor, I can only imagine you're sitting there with her and it's like you're looking even at yourself going, oh, that's a really good shot of me. Maybe I should leave that in, or that's a real. Oh, I don't look too good there. Let's cut to let's let let's plug in a coverage shot there. You know what? What was that experience like for you in the editing bay with Lorna? 
Well, I'll tell you about it. But, I mean, here's the secret weapon of the whole thing. Lorna Weapon, uh, Lorna Finn is also uh, the DIT. She and George have worked together for like 20 <laughs> years. So she was on set as we shot. And George also has this customized van where inside he had an editing switch. And so Lorna was basically pulling footage and assembling, you know, so we could make sure we had all our coverage as we went because we only sometimes had sets for locations for a few hours. Mm-hmm. So that was a really key. And then because she knew the movie so intimately, you know, once we got into actual editing it, uh, you know, she knew all of the different coverage. We you know, we marked which ones, of course, we want, we thought were the best takes, but she knew all the. Um, you know, all the material really well. It wasn't like she was unfamiliar. And she also knew the actors, you know, because she was on the set with us. So I think that really helped, um, you know, get into the sort of intimacy of the editing because it's all about, you know, the relationships and the, the pacing, you know. And so because she actually heard it, it was um, good for us to, you know, sit there and comb through it and, like, let's take a breath out there, let's cut there, try to ke- recapture that moment, you know, that was live because sometimes, you ha- you know, you you don't want to have one master, you know, so, yeah. um, she was amazing, an absolute wizard, you know, as far as, um, uh, editing, you know, with, like I said, we had 12 days, so we had minimal coverage. We did our masters on bids and our close-ups, and George was great at that. We had, his whole crew were like elves. They just always had every setup ready, so we weren't kept waiting. So, um, we had, uh, a few options, and also everybody lined ready, so they just dove in, and so, we didn't have a lot of options, but they were all very fresh and vital. So Lorna had a lot to work with, and it was great working with her. We, you know, we did a lot of it over the phone. She was in Florida, but we, you know, we Skyped and shared screens, and I'd give her notes and work on it. And uh, she was an absolute pleasure to work with, and just um, incredibly top-notch. No, because your pacing, the pacing of the film... It goes at a nice, there's a nice flow to it. There's a nice flow to it. So as an audience, you don't feel bogged down. Uh, you don't feel stuck or it's like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Or you, and you also don't feel inundated with anything. You really have a very evenly paced film. Good, good. Yeah, I was trying to, you know, make it flow even though a lot happens and then it gives people some time, you know, to, to breathe between moments, you know, so it's a tricky thing. I think comedy's hard to cut, you know, because you don't know, you know, if you've done this live in front of an audience, you think you know where the laughs are, but, you know, you have to figure out how much gap to leave if they laugh or not to leave too much if they don't, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's a tricky thing, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it seems slow, and I think most uh People seem to get every now and when I watched the screen last night. Some sometimes I was like, "Oh, I could have used a little more air there because that one line got hidden." But you know, that's overall. I think most of it is heard. And though I do hear people say they'd like to hear to watch it again because they want they just want to go over some of those lines because they enjoyed them. So that's um, really heartening to hear. Well, and that's just it. The dialogue is so great. You do want to hear it all. So, uh, you know, because it is so much fun to hear it. But yeah, I'm curious, okay. I'm curious for you, yeah. you know, here you are directing your first feature, directing yourself. So my favorite question to ask actor directors, you know, how well did Michelle take direction? And how <laughs> well, and you know, how difficult was actor Michelle, actor Michelle for director Michelle to work with? <laughs> Surprisingly good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, like I said, I had originally written the role because someone wanted to act with me, and then as I went through it and wrote it, I was like, well, this is fun, and I played it. I also knew it so well, and also when you only have 12 days, it was like I didn't really have time to direct somebody else in it because it's like I already knew it. So in the end, it was it was great fun to play with everybody, and also walking into it, um, I sort of knew what marks I had to hit, and if I wanted to go back and do it again, I would just we do another adjustment. Um, but uh, it sort of helped, I think, at least for this story, move it, move the, the tight shoot quickly because, because they knew it, you know, so well. And so um, it was, uh, it was, a, it helped. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I didn't give myself any grief. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now that you've made it through your first feature, 
you know, what mm-hmm. did you learn about yourself as a director, as a writer, that you can now take forward into future projects? Because I am guessing you are going to be directing again. I, I hope to. I'm trying. I'm working on setting up my second feature, and I also have a, a comedy series that I'd like to shop, and that's basically sort of an eight-episode first season's already written with the kind of the next two, you know, planned out. So whichever, you know, I'm happy to move either one of those forward next, you know, based on timing. But um, what did I learn about myself? Um, that I'm good at this? <laughs> I I was had a great crew. We had a wonderful shoot. It was really a chill set. As I've done a few shorts before, and I always run a very, um, I think, you know, kind of happy uh, crew. I sort of lead with, you know, holding the reins lightly. I, I hire people who really know their job, and I let them do it and bring, you know, their suggestions to me, but it's always a, a collaboration, and, and they're always very respectful uh, of each other's uh, talents and, you know, skills. Mm-hmm. And um, and I also got this done in 12 days, like on time, on budget, you know, for what I had. So um, I was, I think that's a good sort of proof of competency going forward when I went to go and ask for more money for the next uh, film from from other people, you know, from investors versus like, this is all like debt and donations to get this one up. Mm-hmm. So I hope they'll look at this and see <clears throat> what I could do in a short amount of time and limited funds and, you know, extrapolate from that, that I could do a good job, you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. So now where can people, what's, what's next for Toss It? Still on the festival circuit? Any distribution bites? Where can people or hope to see it eventually? It's still festival. We do have some distributors looking and a sales agent, and there might be another L.A. screening that I can't yet talk about until it's confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yes, this is pretty. It's very much not yet available for the public. I hope to. <laughs> Well, I hope Gravitas is looking at this film because this is like right up their alley. So I, I, I sincerely hope they're one of them. And I know some of the people from Gravitas listen to the show, which is also why I throw it out there. Um, Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> they are. So I don't want to let that out of the bag, but we'll see. Um, no, because th- this is right in their wheelhouse. And I, th- when I was watching the film, that's the first thing I thought is, oh, Gravitas should be looking to pick this up. So, you know, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, Michelle. (laughs) Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Michelle, unfortunately, we're out of time because I have two other writer-director actors who are coming on the line. This is Annie's fault. Blame Annie. She and I booked all of you today. Uh, (laughs) Love Annie. Oh, Annie's great. But I can't. Annie Jeeves, we're talking about. <laughs> yes, Annie Jeeves, indeed, we are talking about. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Please come back on the show again. I would love to have you. Oh, thank you, Debbie. I would love to come back. Wonderful. And in the meantime, I will cross my fingers for Toss It. And everybody else can, follow, so the, can follow the festival circuit. Thank you so much, Debbie. Absolute pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Michelle Remsen, writer, director, actor, toss it, look for it on the fest circuit, and crossing our fingers that it gets a distribution deal soon. Now, two incredible guys who made me laugh myself silly, Max Azule, Matt Porter, five doctors, way to go, guys. This is a fun, fun film. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) We're excited to be here. I I am welcome to Behind the Lens. I am so thrilled to have you. I had so much fun watching the hypochondriacal Spencer. I can't tell you. I mean, I was oh, we're, we're... I was in stitches. Pardon the pun. Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. you know, so was I for much of the movie. You know where where did the idea for this film germinate uh you know this is this is it's not typical yeah we've seen hypochondriacal scenarios before but not like this with an underlying tie-in as to what really is prompting it 
and the journey yeah, well, that Spencer goes on? I'd say it, 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 it really started when we were a few years out of school. Uh, Matt and I have known each other for a long time since we were literally children. Um, and the third writer on this, Phil, as well. We've all been friends for a very long time. And uh, always knew we wanted to have a career in film and in comedy and uh, also always riddled with, especially after school, riddled with a uh, certain type of anxiety that was hard to uh, <laughs> always understand what the source was. But as we started writing it, it became clear that this was therapeutic for us as well. So it really was born out of career anxiety and anxiety about the future and also this, you know, we were separating from home and from our parents and family, so it was very, very personal. Yeah, and I'll just add that, um, I'll just add that uh, I think for us also there was, uh, there we've made a lot of short films together over the years, and this is our first feature after making a handful of short films and, uh, something that we always tend to be drawn towards are these stories where a character gets sort of fixated on the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I think this this was an idea that we actually thought of initially as a short film, and then we sort of realized, well, if you add a couple more doctors, you get sort of a fun sort of road trip movie uh, that kind of investigates, yeah, the, those ideas of wanting to move on from your home, but but we have a lot of people in their 20s can relate to this feeling of not quite moving on all the way, leaving the address on your ID, uh, your parents' address, or not updating where you're registered to vote. Or And for us, the example of that we, we wanted to latch onto is this idea of traveling back to where you grew up to go to your doctor's appointment. Right, and the moral of the story is if you want to change something from a short film to a long film, add a few more doctors. <laughs> well, you know, and I have—I will confess this to you guys. I've been in LA 38, 39 years now, and for the first and for the first number of years after I was out here, I would go to my doctor and dentist back in Philadelphia, in suburban Philadelphia. Right. So yeah. Well, there's something there's something very comforting about it, and it all it feels like it's practical, but it's really not very practical at all. Oh. Yeah, we we, uh, we we felt like my character either he couldn't quite tell if he wanted his doctor or his uh, his mommy. Well, and and you know, you know that that's and obviously we see by the end of the film which it is that Spencer really needs, but we're not going to give any spoilers away. Right. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Now, you know, some of the idiosyncrasies that that you bring into play. Uh, not only with the performance of Spencer, but also in his blue notebook. That is, that is hilarious. That blue note, loose leaf book goes everywhere with all of these, you know, printed things off the Internet about, you know, dentistry issues and, you know, disease, potential diseases. You know, that just added so much. And it's every time you see that notebook, you laugh. Because as we start seeing exactly what all is in there. And when you're consulting for, well, I have a 245 appointment. So, Jay, you know, you got to forget about school. you got to take me to my 245. And, you know, yeah. where, where did the impetus for the notebook come? And then, you know, um, that really worked in so well. Yeah. Um, well, I... Max, you can fill in if, I, if I'm forgetting anything, but I think it, yeah. the, no, the notebook came in really early on when we started writing. I think uh, we just knew that a movie like this could become very uh, talky and very driven by dialogue in a way that we were comfortable with, but we also wanted to find as many visual elements as possible. Mm-hmm. The sensor running out of the car every time they pull up to a new appointment and the, the and little details like that, and I think for us the binder was a good example of even if it's maybe not the most uh, normal way in 2018 to carry around uh, <laughs> your direction. Uh, we kind of like the idea that sensor was there, there was just a very nice specificity to it, and the binder could just get messier through the movie, just like Spencer does as well. Mm-hmm. Right, and he, I think he's a I think he was a character who has this sort of OCD fixation on 
structure and con- trying to control some element of his life because everything feels very, very out of control. So, you know, he wants reassurance from these doctors that he's okay and he can, he, he feels control in being able to structure these appointments. And we also like to show that, you know, quest for control with this object, which is his binder. And he has all his appointments and all the WebMD print, uh, printouts of all the diseases he might have. Everything in it is kind of his his, uh, his his little object that makes him feel like he has some semblance of control in his crazy whirlwind of a life. And, of course, the fact that you picked a color like the, the aquamarine turquoise that you did so that it always stands right. out. Your uh, Our eyes go right there. We know, uh-oh, what's Spencer doing now? Um, so who got to do the WebMD research to come up with all the symptomology for uh, Spencer's complaints? <laughs> I- it's very. We had a team of specialists. Uh, I, I think team of was, hypochondriacs. Yeah, I think that team of hypochondriacs is probably just us, the writers, because for us it wasn't <laughs> that hard to uh, to come up with little things that, that probably aren't anything, but you could absolutely obsess about them and and look them up for for hours. <laughs> yep, I did it earlier today. Oh, I'm so glad. Did you find anything new <laughs> that you need to worry about today? Yes. Um, well, I just turned 30, so, I, you know, my brain's going a little haywire. I, 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 when I find out what the exact anxiety I'm going to focus on is, I'll call back into the show. You know, it could be directoritis, you know, directing your first... Directoritis. Directoritis, d- directing your first feature. You know, I'm curious, because you guys obviously knew you were going to direct this, you wrote this, uh, you're going to direct this. How did you approach directing, especially with the two of them? Was somebody more in tune with wrangling cast? Uh, was this a work in progress, just handoff, handoff, handoff between camera uh, and and in front of the camera? What was that process yeah. like? Well, it was actually it was it was something we really thought a lot about because. Uh, <clears throat> The two of us are directors both together and separately, and right. the three of us, including our friend Phil, have done a lot of work together in situations that are pretty bare bones. We've done short films where it's really just the three of us with a couple other people on set. So we wanted to figure out how to take the model that had worked for us when projects were smaller and be able to take it to something bigger and not have the crew look at us. Like, we're crazy saying, well, these are the three people in charge, and they, and they would feel like, well, who do we listen to? This is going to uh, devolve into chaos. But we did a lot of pre-production, a really intense amount of pre-production. We had every shot. Um, we took every shot as a photograph um, using a particular app that can mimic uh, focal length. And so before the movie started, we literally had, you could flip through a flip book of every shot um, and that gave us a certain amount of uh, uh, ability to revise our shot list and to improve our coverage in each scene beforehand. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and in addition to that, uh, when it came to um, working on set, we were just pretty good at, at, at uh, beforehand agreeing on how we would deal with problems when one person was acting, being able to give them the space to disappear into it, and everyone and the other two could sort of carry the torch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did, because so much of this is, as you mentioned, you know, it's a road pick going to doctors. And so much of this Mm -hmm. is not interiors. It's traveling from point A to point B. It's, you know, Max, you're you're constantly jumping out of the car. You know, Matt, you poor thing, you're trying to get him into the car to drive the car. Um, You know, so working with your DP, with Zach Cooperstein, you know, what kind of discussions did you have in designing the logistics, the lighting and the camera logistics uh, in particular, because you're not just in one set place? Yeah. Um, well, another aspect, or Max, were you going to say something? No, no, no. no, no uh, I was going to say, um, uh, yeah, working with Zach. Zach is an incredible DP, and he... Um, he actually was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for this other uh, this horror movie that he did um, a little while after ours. He's a really talented DP, and he and he was really helpful at working with us early on to make sure that we found a look for the film that was that didn't make the town feel um, too 
frenetic, but made the character's anxiety still come out. We didn't want it to feel like this town was dark and, and uh, like a negative place to be. It really is Spencer's misunderstanding of his town that makes it, uh, brings him the anxiety. So we, pr- we tried to have it have this in the design as well, to have real color and warmth, but we then kind of tried to balance that with a lot of camera movement uh, and scenes that we would cover with only one or two or three shots that were moving throughout the scene. So as a result, we sort of found this rhythm where Spencer's character was expressed through these shots that maybe the lighting and the tone of the visual was still relatively warm and inviting, but the way the camera moved was kind of mimicking Spencer's anxiety. And then on the flip side for Jay, for my character, there was more of an emphasis on these wider sort of what we call them sad wise, these wide shots of him sort of sitting alone kind of quietly or uh, having a little moment alone um, that were still handheld. So there was a little bit of that, anxiety in it, but it was a, it communicated something different. There was very rarely that the camera would be bustling alongside Jay in the way that it bustled along with Spencer. So right. I think that was the, the approach. Yeah, and, I, and, and the movie takes place over the course of a single day, mm-hmm. and as it goes on, I think the aesthetic becomes a little more comforting, especially as Spencer's mind starts to get eased, and like Matt said, the town starts to feel warm and inviting, and that was important to us to also mirror the character's arc of starting to feel comfortable um, and like you might not even want to leave. Well, and saying that you might not even want to leave, it's like we get to that beautiful money shot of Spencer sitting at the train station with the with the warm red brick behind him, you know, the old school station setup uh, that you see it back east more so than anywhere else. And just sitting on the bench as the sunset's coming in and the little dog on the... It's just... That is a money shot. It's beautiful. And it's like, oh, God, why would you want to leave? It's just... It it was perfection, total peace at that moment. And, right. And I just thought it was beautifully... It's a beautiful visual arc that you create within this film. And, you know, kudos to you for the construct, especially with defining, you know, both characters through camera movement as well as performance. Because I know that is not easy yeah, was, to do. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, this is the town. Ta- I grew up in the, this town, Hastings, that we shot the movie in, and so did a, a third writer on this film, and Matt grew up nearby. So it was interesting to sort of see the town, and, you know, we've been away for a while. And, 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 you know, being home, you do, you do attach to it a certain anxiety or a certain, you know, you see it through the lens of the past. But seeing the town fresh by shooting it and creating an aesthetic was really interesting. You got a new appreciation for where you grew up. And uh, I, I'm happy that it comes out in the visuals. Well, did the town embrace you coming back and shooting? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. The town is really supportive. Um, the high school was really supportive. A lot of the kids in the movie are actual high school students um, that uh, were. We even did audition some more actor, you know, you know, kids that were looking to act from outside the town. But we ended up actually really preferring a lot of the kids that auditioned for us from the town. So it's, it was very, very much a. Uh, a hometown affair, and all of us during the shoot were living in the houses of various friends and friends of friends. Uh, so it was a little summer campy in that sense as well. And, and the town wrote about the film while we were there and was, you know, really helpful with permits and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a really great kind of coming home experience. Well, now that you said, you know, talking about the high school, I've got to ask you about the art fair, the production design for the art fair. That was that whole hallway, the art fair sequences, that was, it's absolutely stunning to look at. And the fact that it was all hand-done, you know, artwork from students, that really, it's something we don't see in most films anymore. Everything is more polished, it's cleaner. But this is really, you know, it's a little more old school, a little more tactile, and you've really got a great use of color, you know, just absolutely so well done. Was that done by the school, your production designer? Where did that design come into play? Well, 
Thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, that, that, that color, how it works. Uh, and it, it was definitely something that was 100% our production designer. I mean, the school, the school definitely has a natural feeling that tends towards the palette of what we wanted. So it mm-hmm. definitely wasn't as far for it to go. But in terms of, yeah, the art on the walls and the, the color that you see and the... Uh, in the art fair itself at the very end, like when everything's fully set up. The palette is fully uh, built out by our production designer, um, Gabby Moses, uh, who is really incredibly talented and, and was, was very hands-on with color. Like uh, you mentioned the binder earlier. She was very good at keeping that particular color blue out of the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. So she, she was really great um, at keeping the the palette consistent and we were also lucky that the, the part of why this palette felt right is because this was the town we were picturing and a lot of the town itself had buildings that really fit this aesthetic it's not a place with a lot of chains a lot of sort of uh you know clean white corners it's a little more of a lived-in uh local business kind of a town so and the high school is similar i would add to that i mean there's a moment in the in the high school where my character is looking at a poster poster of a play you know my character is you know, it was a big kind of high school actors where he learned to want to act and perform. And so there's a moment, you know, where he's looking at this old poster from high school of a play he was in, looking at his old self. And that was real. That was a, that was a play I was in, you know, middle school, or early high school, looking at myself in the poster. You know, we found it. So it was kind of like, it really was, it was a strange sort of um, uh, almost out-of-body experience <laughs> to be back, suddenly back in the high school where you're, you're feeling all these things, but now you're making a movie about being there. And uh, so it really was a journey for us, the shooting. I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of reckoning with the past where you grow up, but it was also nice to feel like they were so inviting and warm and, uh, yeah, very singular experience. Well, you know, the icing on the cake with any film is, you know, music. Music can, it can, right. it can lead, it, which is never good. It can follow. It can be totally disjointed and not match. You've got some great music here. What kind of discussions did you have with Andy Clausen about the music that you ended up with in this film? Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, we really, and I know that Phil, uh, our third musketeer on this, uh, would really appreciate you bringing up the music because that's another aspect that we were always very um very committed to finding a, a really nice soundtrack for the film, even as a really low-budget movie. We knew that, you know, we had this vision of this sort of 60s and 70s kind of like soul and and blues and sort of like, uh, um, you know, this this feeling that feels a little nostalgic. And we, we knew that to do that um, could get very expensive. But, yeah, working with our um, score uh, composer, Andy Clausen, and also with our music supervisor, uh, Joseph Miller, both of them uh, were really mindful at giving the film overall that kind of more nostalgic feeling. I mean, with the with Andy, uh, we had had some temp music in there for months and months of editing, and he was very good at storing that right in the garbage and thinking about the energy and emotion of the movie, and we put together a band uh, with, uh, you know, live horns and a extremely talented group of musicians and we recorded it all in one day but it was like recording a band like it wasn't uh as maybe uh the score is not maybe as uh reactive to the film as other styles of score it was very much like we wanted to create these little song moments just mm-hmm. without any uh vocals and then we have in the film thanks to joseph we have a couple of legitimate 60s era sort of b-side soul and r&b songs that uh were amazing songs and just luckily for us are sort of hidden in these libraries of of, ama- of old songs where it wasn't so it didn't break the bank too bad to be able to put them in a movie like ours mm-hmm. and Matt and I also wrote a song for the movie uh, called Ribosomes which you may remember we played uh, together and uh, that was uh, it's, it's not a I wouldn't call it a good song but it is a song we wrote <laughs> and, it, and uh, it scientifically fits. very inaccurate wouldn't you say Matt it. Yeah, no, the, we, Google, we Googled ribosomes for maybe about two minutes. The, the characters in the film are supposed to have written a song in, uh, you know, back in high, high school for a science project, and they end up playing it again in the movie, and it's about ribosomes. But 
clearly neither of them have done the had done the homework to know what ribosomes were exactly. No, and of course you didn't have Google back then. So, no. you know, God help if you would have gone to the library to actually look it up when you were students. <laughs> that was that would not happen. Right. You know, that's but, beyond these characters' capabilities. <laughs> so, how exciting is it now? You've come through this journey. Finally, tomorrow, everybody has a chance to see five doctors because you're you digital and VOD tomorrow. I mean, it's very exciting. It's I, it, it, it's a little bittersweet. In a way, I think Matt and I have talked about kind of, you know, kind of dealing with it on some level. This it's been such a huge part of our lives for the last six years. You know, this grounding one big project that's always been in some stage of development, whether it's writing or shooting or editing or whatever. So now that it's out there, it's it's great and exciting, but it's also like it's it's almost a feeling of loss because you're losing this thing that's been such a huge part of your life. But I think. The next leg of the journey will be great, too. You know, hopefully people enjoy it and can find it. But it's, it's, it's strange. It's really been, like, a long time working on this. Yeah, and I'll just add quickly that I think um, we started writing it in 2012, I believe, and we've sort of been growing up through the process of yeah. making this movie. Like, we've gone... We 24 when we started writing it. Now we're both 30. Yeah, we're both 30. So it's like, uh, in a way... Something that has been really incredible is to see how a project like this, after so many years, it kind of grows up with you. Even when we wouldn't make major changes to the to the project, we would sort of appreciate it in a new way every year through each process, through each step of the movie. And I think now it really feels like it's kind of met us where we are in terms of what we're thinking about. You know, the themes in the movie and the humor in the movie and the heart in the movie. It's like I think. I feel more proud of it than I ever have, and not because it's exactly what we were picturing when we were 24, but because it sort of, I think, has elevated with us to a point where it feels a little more, there's more depth to it, there's more There's, there's more to it than I think we even realized when we wrote it. So Definitely, I mean, it is, yeah, I think it is more emotional for both of us, I'm guessing for both of us, than we even are admitting to ourselves to be letting it go, because I even feel a little kind of numb this week just letting it, go you know it, it, it's strange but it, i agree with that I, I feel proud of it and just proud of us that we powered through well i'm glad you powered through because it is as i said i just think it's a delight i laughed myself silly in this uh, but then you have moments of real heart and you know that shot of spencer at the train station with the dog okay that just that just killed me that killed me because it just right. it, it the well, thank you. the poignancy thank you so of that journey is just it's something for everybody and as I said I mean heck when I first came to L A I would still fly back east to go to the doctor <laughs> right, right so it's it, you know it's there's so much truth in here and when you're writing what you not just what you know but from the truth within you. It really comes out on the screen, and I mean, you guys did a great job. You really did. We really very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. So, uh, are we working on another film now? We're always working on a new thing. The The three of us, uh, both together and separately, are always busy with new stuff, so we'll definitely, we'll definitely shout to the rooftops when the, the next project is is coming through the pipeline and we'll make sure that you and everybody uh, knows it's coming. Well, you guys have an open invitation to come back on Behind the Lens anytime. Anytime. Appreciate it. We'll be back. Hopefully. Hopefully. No, you'll be back. Let's just leave it at that. You'll be back. (laughs) Guys, Max Azuli, Matt Porter, thank you so much. Five Doctors, everyone can see it on digital and VOD tomorrow, February 27th. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And five doctors look on the fest circuit for Toss It. And that is all the time we have today. Again, join us next week. Dick Cavett will be here at the half-hour mark of the show. And, you know, you can check out all of our shows if you miss them. BehindTheLensOnline.net. Behind the Lens on iTunes, Behind the Lens on Stitcher, Behind the Lens on IndiePopcorn.fm, 
and a bunch of other places. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.